verse 5. So Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. But let me read it to you first of all. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So I've already said this, this month we're starting our church year in January, that's a profound statement, um, but by looking at different phrases that we find in the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to work our way through it. And, and the first one we're going to look at and think through this morning is this phrase, what does it mean to hallow God's name? It's kind of a strange uh, phrase, to hallow someone's name. This is uh, how John Calvin described it, one of the church's uh, great fathers and pastors. Hallowed be your names. It means to have your heart entirely captivated with wonderment for him. So it's a word of capture, a word of treasuring, a word of delighting, a word of wonder-filled awe and being gripped by the beauty and magnitude of someone or something. And in this case, it's God by uh, dissensing and seeing and uh, tracing his beauty and counting out 10,000 reasons and then 10 million more 
of who God is and why he's beautiful and what the promises of God in Christ mean. And, it, and it's a question, okay, if that's what it means, how do you do that? Where do you begin? And we're going to begin by looking in Psalm 63 because this is what David does. Look down at verse 4 of Psalm 63. How do you praise, how do you adore God? What does it mean to hallow God's name? David says, verse 4 of Psalm 63, I will praise you as long as I live. Adoring God, hallowing his name, tracing his beauty, feeling his worth. It's all about, verse 4, praising God. There aren't three, as is my normal number. I've got five quick, don't be alarmed, five quick uh, ingredients of a healthy prayer life. They're not necessarily to be taken um, for rote. They're not necessarily something you have to do in order. That might be helpful, it might not be to you. But here are five words. Thinking, expressing, valuing, beholding, resting. Five quick ingredients to a healthy prayer life that you might like to use as we think about what it means to, to hallow, to treasure, to praise, to make much of God's name from Psalm 63. Here we go. Number one, thinking. Thinking. This is a psalm of David. It says that at the top, just above uh, verse one of Psalm 63, that there's verse zero. You might like to call it that. And in verse zero, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So he's in trouble. We're going to tell you more about that in a moment or two. But notice, as David begins to pray, he does not say only, God you're great. Now in some psalms he does say that, in some songs he begins a song like that, but notice what David says. He doesn't just say you're great, he breaks it down. He starts thinking about God's greatness. Verse 2, verse 3, he begins to break down what he's thinking about God as he thinks it through. I see your power, verse 2. I see your glory, verse 2 and 3. I see your love, so David is meditating, he's thinking about who God is. All praise starts like this, because praise is very much and very closely linked to love. Praise is very closely linked to love. When you fall in love with someone, I'm not that keen on that phrase, but you know what I mean. When you fall in love with someone, you don't just say, you're really cool. If you're a great teenage boy like me, not having a clue about how to speak to uh, young ladies. You don't just say you're wonderful, you're great, you're grand. When you start to get to know someone, you start to notice what they enjoy. You start to notice piece, uh, pieces of their character and, and their features more closely, more attentively. You start to notice where they go to and the music they listen to. Not in a creepy stalker way, but you start to notice what they are like, truly alike. You start to notice their character. You start to count the ways that you enjoy them. It's not a hard thing for you to buy them a gift for a birthday or for Christmas because you know what they like. There's a film, it's an old film, called Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day tells the story of Bill Murray, who plays the main character, and Andy McDowell, 
Uh, Bill Murray uh, keeps hitting his alarm clock because he's stuck in this circle of time where he repeats the same day over and over again. Quite an interesting concept for a film. He meets the same people, he puts his foot in the same puddles. It's the same thing over and over again. Eat, drink, repeat, that kind of thing, hit the alarm clock. But there is a love of his life who's played by Andy McDowell. And uh, about halfway towards the end of the film, something like that, having endured this year of days, Bill Murray, over and over again as he hits the alarm clock to uh, repeat the cycle again, at one point he says to Andy McDowell, I love you. She says, having not experienced the repetitive nature of his world and of his life, you don't love me, you don't even know me. But the thing is, Bill Murray has been noticing and thinking why he loves Andy McDowell. He's been noticing what she's interested by. And this is what he says to her response, you don't even know me. Yes, I do. You like boats, but not the ocean. You like a lake in the summer, in the mountains. You're a sucker for French poetry. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. He doesn't just say, I love you. He doesn't just say, you're great. He loves her. And he's been thinking about why he loves her. He's been noticing not just how she looks, but who she is. He's been observing her character. Here's what I love about you. And he's ready to just list out all the things that I enjoy about who you are. That's why I love you. When you pray, first thing you need to do is to think about who God is. You need to number 10 reasons why you love God because of who he is. What's his character like? You need to number 100 reasons, maybe even write a song about it. 10,000 reasons, a million, depends on how much time you have, but why not start by thinking about who God is? Thinking about what he's done. I praise you for being a God of love. You could start like that, but then you could think more deeply. I praise you for being a God of costly love, of unending love. I praise you for being a God of wise love, of tough love, of disciplined love, of undeserved love. You'll never learn what it means to hallow God's name unless you begin with thinking why God is beautiful and lovely, unless you know him, because praise always begins with knowledge. Here's the second one, expressing, expressing. So you get to know God more closely as you read his words. But then David says that's not enough, verse 2 and 3. Verse 4 and 5 we see he starts to express his love for God. Did you notice that in verse 4 and 5? It's not enough just to see God's glories. You need to express it. He says, my lips will glorify you. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. In your name I will lift up my hands. The praise begins with thinking about who God is. It begins in the mind, you could say. That's not where it ends. Because having thought about who God is, you want to express it. And it's public. And it's personal. And it's musical. And it's corporate. It's congregational. That's why we sing. Because we want to express our love for who God is. C.S. Lewis put it like this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's not like I enjoy something and then I praise it. A follows B. No, it's A and B are together. I enjoy something and then I want to share it. And the sharing 
The sharing completes the joy. It increases the joy. One thing we're good at as a family is eating. It's our uh, family sport, you could say. But when you're really enjoying your food, if in our house you share a meal with us and you stop eating, beware, because a fork may cross the table to take something from your plate. Um, we've got one or two issues with, with, with boys that are growing and like eating quickly and their dad's not much better. But uh, if you're not guarding your food in our home, if you're out in a restaurant or maybe you're at home and you've got a recipe that's worked really well, so you're not protecting it, what do you want to do? You want to load them on your fork and say, you've got to taste this. You've got to taste this. You, oh, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to taste this lovely red wine that I got for Christmas because it's fantastic. Can I pour you some? And so on. The praise, the enjoyment is increased by sharing it and by expressing the delight. When you're singing a hymn, why do you like singing songs and praises to God through song? Because very often hymn writers, the men and women that write songs are gifted in a way that I am not. But they, they express the joy that we have for God in a way that's greater than I or you can do it. And that's why you love singing great songs and great hymns with good words they express our enjoyment of God and it's cyclical isn't it you sing and you praise you enjoy God more that means your joy is increased and he is more satisfied he's more um, enamored he's more glorified as we praise him appropriately and correctly glorify me because I want you to have the joy that you won't have otherwise it's kind of a summary of God's heart for us Glorify me because I want you to have the joy that you won't have in any other place. Number three, thinking, expressing, valuing, valuing. What do I mean? If you're going to buy a car, if you're going to buy a phone, you're going to buy a house, if you're like me, you're going to buy a tin of baked beans. You always compare what's on the shelf. You always Google and say, how much is that car worth? Oh, I can get it cheaper next door. I'm going to go there. You do that sort of thing where you evaluate and compare two objects. Look at what David just says in verse 3. Speaking of God, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Because your love is greater than life, my lips, I want to glorify you. Now look up to uh, verse 0 at the top of your Bible under Psalm 63. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. David was running for his life. That's the context of this psalm. He's being hunted down like a wild animal and he's afraid and he's scared. He's still the king of Israel but his son Absalom has uh, arranged a coup so his rule is looking like it's going to come to an end and his life will come to an end all too soon. But then he has an experience of God's majesty. He senses his glory and look at what he says, verse 3. Your love is better than life. He's saying, I've done the comparison. And when I value you, your love and experiencing your love from you, knowing you intimately, I would rather, ha I'd rather have that than my own physical heart beating in my chest. I would rather know you than anything else. I would rather die than lose you. That's what David's saying, if you flip it over. He's thinking out the uh, implications of God's love to him 
and he's thinking it through and it's warming his heart. I don't want to keep my life and lose you. I'd rather lose my life and keep you. That's what David, that's the mass he's doing in verse 3. And he's thinking it through more and more. You're a God of great eternity and great power and great love. He's thinking it out. He's expressing it. He's delighting in who God is. And if you are like that, then why am I afraid? Why am I afraid because of who you are? It doesn't matter if I die here. It doesn't matter if my life is lost in the desert. As long as I have you, your love is better than life. See, David sees the glory of God and then he can't keep it in. He wants to express it. And when you think it through, when you bring into your own heart the truth of God, it means that it can change your life. So don't just praise God as you seek to hallow his name by saying you are a God of love. You think through the implications of it as David has done. If you are really this loving, then why am I so afraid? That's David thinking through the implications that God is a God of love. Here's another one. Don't just praise God for being a God who is wise. If you're really that wise, why am I so upset about how my life is going from my limited perspective? God, I trust you because you're a God of love and you're a God of wisdom. Don't just praise God for being a God of mercy. Think it through. If you're really that merciful, if the gospel is true, if Jesus died for me, then why am I still shaped by the guilt from what is past? No condemnation, now I dread. You think through the gospel, linking the character of God revealed in the Bible with your life. And that's what David is doing. Your love is better than life. He doesn't just say you're loving. He says your love is better than my life. He's working through the implications of knowing Christ. So praise is more than words coming out of your mouth flowing from your heart it streams out of your mind as you think through the character of God and the promises of God adoring God always changes what you love and when you adore him when you value him you start to see in correct perspective everything you value in this world everything that promises so much but delivers so little and Christ alone is worth living for thinking expressing, valuing, for, beholding, beholding. It's not a very modern word. Look at verse 2. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. A bit later on, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. I beheld, I saw, I beheld your glory. Probably doesn't mean that he had a literal vision. It might, I don't think it does. But it's more likely that David is sensing, uh, sensing in himself, in his mind, in his heart, in his spirit, the worth and greatness of who God is. He's sensing God's power and his love, and it's being, uh, it's moulding his heart. It's the weight upon his chest. He's uh, not just knowing this truth; he's enjoying it. Your love feels like a feast for me. When I know you, it satisfies me. I don't just know that you have power and glory. I've beheld it. I've seen it. I've sensed it. I've enjoyed it. When you start to hallow God's name, when you pray, you should know a little bit of that. That's the famous quote that I've used many times before from Jonathan Edwards. He says about honey, 
He says, I can tell you that honey is sweet, but until you actually taste it on your taste buds, until you get it on your tongue, until you internalize the reality of that nectar, that sweet truth, the sensation of sweetness of honey conveys a knowledge beyond what I could give you rationally. Okay, I could tell you about it, but just taste it and then you will see. And then Edwards keeps going and he says this. It's another thing. It's one thing to say that God is holy. It's another thing to sense his holiness. To actually sense you're in the presence of his holiness is to see his perfection and then you sense your flaws. It's one thing to have an opinion that God is loving. I think he's loving. It's another thing to actually sense his love shed on your heart with as much reality as if you were in the presence of the living God. As if you were uh, knowing the embrace of a human hugging you, embracing you. But to know that love from Almighty God, that is a rare thing. But it's a true thing, it's a real thing. That ultimately your life, your prayer life will not change until you sense something of the might and love and justice and worth and goodness of God. Sometimes you can behold his glory in its light. Sometimes you can feel it and you long for it to go. It's too much for you. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. But I think David is showing us and the Bible reveals to us, our hearts will keep holding on to things that are way less valuable than who God is until we see and sense the greatness and might and worth of who God is in and of himself. Because I'm a mercenary prayer. And sometimes I think you are too. You know a mercenary, like a hired hand who goes in and gets the job done and comes out? I think I'm a mercenary prayer. Maybe you are too. Because you can pray confessionally, Father, forgive me, I've done something wrong. You can pray because you need something. I pray that I'd get this job. I pray that this would go well today. I pray for that person. But very rarely do you or do I perhaps pray in terms of adoration and praise. Very rarely do we praise God simply for who he is. Often I go to God because he's a Coke machine in the sky and I want some Coke. I need some help. He's the genie in a lamp. David says, no, you need to sense who God is and enjoy him and go to him in prayer because of who he is. Not because of something you can get from him. That's the mark of real Christianity. Not mercenary prayer. God, I want you to give me this. Now you're saying, God, I want you because I love you and I need you and you're beautiful to me and I enjoy you and it's a joy to be in your presence. That's adoration, that's beholding something of the glory of God. But when does that happen? How does that happen? Feeling the greatness of God? Lastly, quickly, by resting in who he is. By resting in who he is. What changes for David What changes in his heart? So God goes from being useful, mercenary, to being beautiful. How does that happen in David's heart? Look at verse 1 again. He's in the desert, remember? I thirst for you in a dry and parched land. He's running for his life. Food is very scarce. Water is hardly anything at all because of Absalom's actions. He was after him. He wants his head because he wants to rule and reign in his father's place. 
And I'm sure David was reflecting, as parents would, just the toxic nature of his own family dynamic. A lot of the struggles in his own life were because of his own decision-making, because of his own sin, his own foolish behaviour with Bathsheba and at other times as well. So he's on the run and it looks like his life will come to an end very soon. But look down at verse 11 at the end of Psalm 63 and look at what the king says. Almost certainly David would have gone to the tabernacle to pray to God, assuming that God had abandoned him because of what he'd done. That would make sense. So David goes to the tabernacle unsure, uncertain of how God will respond to him because of the life that he has lived, because of what he has done. But notice when he gets to the sanctuary, verse 2 and 3, I've seen you in the sanctuary, I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. Now that word love is important. That word love is the word for covenant love, for God's always and forever love for his never stopping, always and forever love. It's unconditional love, it's covenant love, it's committed love. And that means no matter what David has done, God will always welcome him into his presence. And to his shock, when David goes into the sanctuary, verse 2 and 3, what does he find? That God is there to meet him in his love and with his forgiveness and with his mercy. And I'm sure he must have thought, why are you still loving me? How are you still loving me? I don't deserve this because it's all of grace. And so he says, verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. Now he's the king. So what must have happened is this, this truth, if it was separated, which I'm sure it was, he has remembered, he's rejoined the truth that he knows that God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And David is resting in that truth. He's resting in the covenant promises of God. The king, David, will rejoice in God. Why? Because of who God is, not because of what the king has done. Now, it's the beginning of a new year. It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be uncertain from a human perspective and perhaps from a COVID perspective as well and many other perspectives also. David went to the sanctuary threw himself on God's mercy and found abundance of grace and delight and joy. And we have so much more in terms of clarity and perspective to reflect on God's great and glorious character living this side of the cross. How is it possible that God goes from being useful to being beautiful? Because of the cross. David may have seen it ever so dimly, but we see it with great clarity, don't we? We have something far greater than David could ever dream of. We have a God who can love us and still love us in spite of ourselves and did not abandon David and he will not abandon you or I this year. Why? Because he abandoned his son. That on the cross, David's greatest son, the king of all kings, was nailed to the cross for sins that he didn't commit, but our sins that he carried. He died in our place as we know so well. And because he was abandoned then, he will never abandon you now. He didn't abandon David and he won't abandon us still. That and that alone can make your heart change shape. That God goes from being useful to being beautiful. 
He turns from a God that we can use as a mercenary to a beautiful person we adore. It can change the shape of your heart this year. Because adoring God is a matter of thinking, expressing, valuing, beholding and resting. Let's pray together.